CloudPod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 48, recorded on November 20th, 2019. Import existing resources into the CloudPod. Good evening, you guys. How's it going? Spectacular. We are here the week before Thanksgiving, and that means we're only two weeks out from reInvent. So that is getting time to get packing the bags and uh, getting prepared. My liver is on uh, calisthenic workouts to prepare for the activities. Yeah, I'll be in Kansas City for a week, so that'll help me get uh, ready for the for the game. Indeed. indeed. Like this preparation for fun like Kansas City. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes the, you're that much more excited about the fun. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, uh, you have a follow-up for us today. Uh, from our last episode, we talked about Redshift. Uh, you want to let us know what you've learned? Yeah, we talked about um, the origins of Redshift, and I did my digging, and I found out that it was actually originally based on Postgres 8.0.2, uh, but it's largely been kind of re-engineered and optimized for large data sets and complex queries only. They've stripped out tons of stuff from the, um, the execution engine, and they replaced the storage engine um, with with an interesting way of kind of remapping what what looks like kind of row based storage on you know, to the to the consumer to a columnar storage system on the back end, which is pretty cool. So it helps improve performance and gives a much better compression ratio. So less cost for SSD. That's fantastic. Uh, I was also right when I said that it was owned by another company. It was owned by uh, Par Excel at one point. Yep. Yep. Uh, and they are no longer exist as a company. They were bought by Actian, and then I don't know what's happened to them. Uh, but uh, so I'm glad to hear that Amazon's made it much better than it was many, many years ago. Well, moving on to uh, topics this week, we have a ton of news uh, with KubeCon and everyone dumping stories for reInvent. We have a ton of news to get through tonight, so we are going to get to it. The first general news story, though, is uh, a container shakeup. Docker has sold their enterprise business to Mirantis and appointed a new CEO. Uh, the selling off of the enterprise business to Mirantis is part of a shakeup that will see Scott Johnson the former head of product, take over the reins as chief executive officer. Uh, Docker CEO Rob Bearden, at least exiting CEO Rob Bearden, said, We determined that Docker had two very distinct and different businesses, one an active developer business and the other a growing enterprise business. We also found that the product and the financial models were vastly different. This led to the decision to restructure the company and separate the two businesses, which is the best thing for customers and to enable Docker's industry-leading technology to thrive. Uh, so the company's roadmap will now support uh, the Docker desktop, its local coding tool for building containerized apps in the Docker Hub marketplace for ready-to-made app components. Uh, Mirantis will be taking over the Docker Enterprise product, or what's left of Swarm, and integrate with Mirantis Cloud Platform, which is a, helps enterprises deploy and run Kubernetes on-premise hardware. Uh, the company also plans to offer a managed version of this in the future. Uh, and Docker and Mirantis will continue to collaborate to maintain their integration between their solutions. Uh, so this is a pretty big, uh, sad time for Docker community, but uh, something I'm not entirely surprised to see. Yeah, I wonder if, if uh, many of the other sort of open source products will end up splitting their, their sort of open source development effort and their, their enterprise efforts for the same reasons. Yeah, I'm not, not surprised. They haven't been profitable, so it's, it's pretty... I mean, they made a pretty bad bet on Docker Swarm. I mean, I think that was a mistake when it was very clear at that point even that Kubernetes was going to become the dominant player in the orchestration wars. Um, so, you know, it's too bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm glad to see Docker as an entity will maybe continue to live Maybe you can get some of its mindshare back, uh, you know, because things like Red Hat have just stripped out the Docker native uh, uh, runtimes and moved to more open source runtimes. So I think Docker in general has been losing market share not only on the open source side but also on the enterprise side. So is there a business model? What is the business model now moving forward for Docker without their enterprise product suite? 
I assume that they might start charging for some of their Docker Hub capabilities. I think that's where they might be able to make money, uh, particularly if they make a Docker Hub for enterprise product um, or something else that make it a little bit more restricted. But I don't think they would be wise to start charging for the Docker desktop. Yeah. That would be a, a really bad choice on their part uh, if they want to continue to be relevant in the space. Presumably they could also still provide you know, professional services. Yeah, good point. That's the original model that I always yeah. loved. Uh, well, as I'm sure to no surprise to either of you, uh, Amazon is officially protesting the Pentagon's cloud contract awarding to uh, uh, Azure, citing an unmistakable bias. Uh, this is a filed paperwork with the U.S. Courts of Federal Claims regarding its legal protest last Friday. And Andy Jossi held an all-hands where he stated plans to protest the decision and push the government to shine a light on what really happened. Uh, apparently, he continued to allude to political pressure from Donald Trump, who has had a longtime beef with Amazon.com CEO Jeff Bezos. And uh, there's a comment here from Jassy. I think when you have a sitting president who's willing to publicly show his disdain for a company and the leader of a company, it's very difficult for government agencies, including the DOD, to make an objective decision without fear of reprisal. Uh, Although it's unlikely they will win the appeal, it does have a few things in its favor. Uh, Amazon does, including the initial expectations to win, and it already earned the trust and respect of Jedi management. Uh, So we'll see where this one goes. What do you guys think? I don't know. Why why, why are they unlikely to win? Um, I I think if the paper trail is there to show that there was interference, and the most likely is, then they, they, they should stand a good chance of, of uh, getting the decision reversed. It depends if, you know, what merits and what reasoning they, they felt that it was going to Azure or AWS. And, you know, if there was direct manipulation by the, the POTUS in this particular situation, then maybe there's something there. But at the end of the day, the DOD has to make a decision. And if they have enough evidence that Azure is a good choice, then they might be able to fight it. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be evidence, though. There can't be oh, this sure there is. concept. Well, if there is, then it's an open and shut case. But there's got to be evidence, even if Jeff is right on from a reality standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know many people who even imagined that Azure had a chance to win that, really. I mean, there were seven people. We had talked about it here on the show a few times where um, people were claiming they thought Azure had a good shot at it. And uh, I think we talked about it. I think even at one point I was kind of thinking maybe Azure had a shot, and then it, it seemed very clear that they didn't. And so I stopped talking about it. But uh, yeah. You know, here we are uh, a year suppose, later. <laughs> I, I suppose, yes, it's taken this, this sweet time. I, I suppose Microsoft have been around for a long time and they're potentially seen as more enterprise friendly. But I mean, tech wise, AWS Cloud is far superior. I totally agree. Well, moving on to uh, things that aren't superior, <laughs> AWS has uh, added some capabilities to CloudFormation, uh, which, of course, is inferior to Terraform. <laughs> uh, they have added the ability to import existing resources into a CloudFormation stack. Uh, CloudFormation, of course, has been the long-standing IAC language or infrastructure's code language of the AWS cloud. Originally supporting JSON as a way to define your infrastructure's code, they later adopted YAML, change sets, and drift detection. Uh, but now they're making it even easier to import existing records into your CloudFormation code. Uh, import existing resources allows you to create a new stack with imported resources, import those existing resources into an already created stack, migrate resources between stacks, or remediate a drift detection and refactor nested stacks by deleting child, child stacks from one parent and importing them into another parent stack. Uh, simple to add resources to an existing stack or create a new stack based off the resources. In the new file, you add a resource is uh, for imported, an imported bucket, and then it will retain its information as you go through the process. Uh, so this is interesting. I tried to go use it, actually, because I was curious how it would work, and then I realized that I still had to write a bunch of Terraform, or sorry, YAML code or JSON code that I would have to define what I wanted imported and then it would do its magic. And I lost interest because uh, all my code's already in Terraform. But uh, right. this is nice for people who you know didn't potentially inherit an infrastructure that has resources. 
but what it didn't really wasn't clear to me is that once I import it, does it actually convert it to be native CloudFormation code, and so I can download that and modify it, or if it just means I've imported it into my CloudFormation so I can reference it, but I don't actually get to use it or change it in CloudFormation in the future. It was a little bit unclear. I think you have to have the object defined in the CloudFormation template, but then you sort of associate an existing resource with with the object in CloudFormation, and so it, then it sort of assumes ownership of that going forward, which which is great because you know things happen occasionally you deprovision things or have to fix things manually and they don't quite match up anymore and previously it was it was a case of you have to take down the entire stack and re- redeploy the entire stack once you've got orphaned resources so at, at least now um, you, you at least have the opportunity to, to keep on managing things with CloudFormation instead of pretending that that template never existed and just doing things manually yeah I mean that's pretty much how Terraform works today with importing resources and it's hugely convenient especially when like a resource gets spun up in um, with another method and then you really don't want to have to destroy it and recreate it just to get it um, under control of your uh, Terraform state. So it makes a ton of sense and it was a huge blocker. Um, I still am a fan of Terraform over CloudFormation, but this was like a showstopper for CloudFormation, not being able to import resources. Yeah, especially, I mean, I, I still have this mental block over CloudFormation and um, and child stacks, child-parent relationship stacks from many years ago. <laughs> but the fact that you can now detach uh, child stacks and then reattach them to something else is is amazing. I still won't use it, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's a day late and a dollar short. Yeah, yeah. really. Uh, our friend of the show, Ian McKay, who was on uh, in the past and talked about Former 2, uh, has day one support for this feature for you guys as well. So if you have uh, used Former 2 in any way, he does uh, support the ability to import existing resources into CloudFormation. Uh, so you can actually help simplify some of that uh, logic that Jonathan was talking about, which is pretty nice. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so this is next story. Uh, the AWS Data Exchange uh, allows you to find, subscribe to, and use data products. Uh, I actually had thought about building this as a startup about 10 years ago, <laughs> and then I never did because uh, I didn't know how to monetize it properly. But it, apparently AWS has figured it out. Uh, and so basically what this service is, is uh, allows many companies uh, use data internally, but many generate and then share, sell that data set with the general public or within their industry. Uh, some initial support for this was added in 2008 with the launch of the AWS public data set. Uh, but that effort then evolved into the registry of open data on AWS, which currently contains over 118 interesting data sets. We talked about a few of them here on the show. Uh, with more added all the time. And so today, they're making the next step available, which is the AWS Data Exchange. This addition to AWS Marketplace contains over 1,000 licensable data products from over 80 data providers. Uh, this diverse catalog of free and paid offerings in categories such as financial services, health and life sciences, geospatial, weather, and mapping data. Uh, and you can search for data sets via free or paid offerings. An uh, example of a great paid one is the Pitney Bowes Plus 4 database, uh, which you can use to then import into a DynamoDB table and use in your e-commerce website, for example. Uh, Etc. The data providers can update the data regularly, and it will send a CloudWatch event each time a product is updated. And if you are subscribed, you can then pull down the latest set of the data uh, via Lambda function or other method. So pretty nice uh, for those who are doing something with data sets uh, that are publicly available. It's awesome, really. If if think about it, like the the democratization of knowledge goes back a very long time, and uh, like I think the printing press was probably the last big innovation when it came to getting information out to the, to the common people, not just the elite class. And so being able to publish information either for free or, or for a small price is, is amazing. It's going to totally change the landscape, I think. Continuous delivery of container applications is now available for Fargate uh, with GitHub Actions. Uh, AWS has open-sourced four new GitHub Actions, uh, both for ECS and ECR capabilities. 
the four new open source GitHub actions are configure AWS credentials, Amazon ECR login, Amazon ECS render task definition, and Amazon ECS deploy task definition. Uh, in addition, they included a starter workflow in the GitHub Marketplace, which can, you can use to customize and build upon as required uh, to stitch these four steps together uh, to build a completely uh, independent uh, GitHub deployment model for your containers. So this is pretty nice. Yeah, I did. this is my first uh, first time I saw this come out. I've got a customer right now we're working with who's on GitHub Actions and using ECS. So I can't wait to download them. I'm really looking forward to the next round of uh, Actions integrations because this is clearly going to continue. It would be nice to get the EKS integration as well. I assume it's coming next. Lambda integration and all these other things. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think you'll start seeing GitHub Actions uh, increase in pace now that it's generally available. I think that was the big blocker to companies really building these out. But uh, they did GA that, I think, last week or the week before. Uh, so this is now available to everybody who's using GitHub. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered well uh that's it for aws let's move on to a reinv reinvent uh, tips and tricks uh for the sessions last week we talked about um a couple different areas but this week we're gonna talk about attending sessions some of the parties and then the replay party which is the party of the week uh so what are you guys' tips and tricks uh to try to get into sessions uh so first if you have not been to the session catalog you're already behind on this one because uh, you did need to register for sessions a while ago but you can get on wait lists uh for these sessions if you didn't have a chance to get a coveted reserve seat uh but this is really gonna be for those people who did not get those reserve seats so uh what are your tips and tricks peter to uh, get into a session that you're super wait passionate in about? line wait in line almost all of them i found there's enough room if you get there with a decent amount ahead of time that uh that you'll get in the session and if you're already if you're already on the list make sure you show up in time because they don't they don't hold your seat for very long people should realize that the reserve seating is is only a portion of the total seats in the room so they they do hold back some spaces for for kind of walk-ups at the last minute so don't be don't be demotivated yeah. if you didn't get into a session. You stand a good chance if you get there early enough. Exactly. Yeah, I think the key thing is you know get there early if you have a really big passion about getting into a session, and you can probably make your way in. The other trick that I've learned um, is if you don't make it in time to wait in line, and they've already let the people in, uh, and they say it's full. If you kind of wait outside for a little while. Uh, typically people will go to a session and maybe it's not what they're looking for or something they didn't uh, quite expect or it's not the right level for them and they'll leave within the first 10 minutes and so if you don't mind missing some of the introductory topic part of it uh, you can also normally get in as a late attendee as well so that's something to keep in mind uh, don't get don't get too discouraged when you get turned away at the door ah, yeah so it's you- like scalping a giant ticket in the second <laughs> inning <laughs> indeed after all the fans are left yeah <laughs> All right. Well, moving on uh, to our next tip uh, for parties. So, of course, there's a ton of uh, events going on throughout the event. There's the pub crawl. There's the Tatanga challenge. There's 
the Sunday night live event at midnight where the, the very first party of the reinvent. But there's also a, a wide range of other parties out there. What do you guys have to suggest on parties? Ooh. Yeah, you know, the, the pub crawl, I think, has gotten so big. It's no longer a crawl because the lines are so long. I think what I would say, at least for the pub crawl, would be do your homework ahead of time. Know which uh, venue you enjoy the most and just get there really early and get in line before it even starts. And uh, then you get in, you be in the right place, and then don't don't try to crawl to other places. Just make it more of a pub stay than a pub crawl. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I did the pub crawl one time and I spent a lot of time uh, traveling and waiting. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's no fun. So yeah, I, I, I kind of steer against that, I think. And um, I, I agree, kind of get there early and find a good place to camp out with some good food and drinks and things. And and don't forget, though, that they're, they are sales funnels and you're going to have to talk to people. And uh, maybe it's a good thing. The pub crawl is a little bit less salesy. I mean, they are sort of salesy, but uh, you can you definitely don't get as hara- much harassment from the pub crawl, in my experience. Uh, but definitely something that's yeah. out there. Yeah, I think parties in general are, are typically like, Oh, yes, parties for sure. Another tip, another tip for the pub crawl. They can't serve shots at the bar, but you can order your drink neat, which is pretty much a shot, and they'll serve it to you. Yeah, that's interesting. You want a shot. Yeah. Uh, I typically have uh, always chosen hotels that are on the the, the bars that are on the ends of the venues. So um, I noticed that if you kind of pick one of the ones that's on either end of the venue, that it has less traffic. And so that's my that's recommendation smart. on the party uh, for the pub crawl is definitely check that out. Um, we will probably be at a pub. We have not decided which one it will be. But if you do follow our Twitter handle, the Cloudpod one uh, or Jonathan, Peter or I on Twitter, uh, we will uh, mention where we're going to be at which pub when we make that decision sometime in the next week. Uh, so we, yeah, if you want to check out us, we'll be there at one of the pubs. We'll kind of camp out because it's taking that tip uh, in advice. The other uh, tip on parties, there is a website called uh, conferenceparties.com slash reinvent 2019. Uh, they will give you a list of all of the vendor parties. Like Jonathan mentioned, they are these are marketing events uh, to try to get your name and information, but they are fantastic. Uh, if you're looking for a, bar, a party on any day of the week, uh, there's pretty much an option for you uh, at any time. So definitely check that out. Uh, you can actually make it through all of reInvent without buying a single drink if you plan your schedule properly. <laughs> all right. Then, of course, the, the big, big party of the week is the, the replay party. What are you guys' tips and tricks for replay? Well, I, I don't know anybody else, but I, I really only go for the replay party. It's it's the, the highlight of the week for sure. Awesome. It's been... <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for the replay party, I think I'd be less inclined to go because it's it's been a, such a good event and really well orchestrated. I mean, feeding... And, and uh, sort of watering tens of thousands of people and the music's being great and the, the fun events are being great. Um, I, I kind of assume they're going to do a similar thing to the last couple of years where they've had big tents and they've had games and uh, activities to do as well as just the regular dancing, the Skrillex of the dance music. So there's, there's often lines for those things, so get there on time. Um, yeah, it's, it's all great fun. Uh, again this year, they're going to do it at the Las Vegas Festival Grounds, which is down by the former Sahara Hotel. Uh, so they will be offering free shuttles. Um, you can also pick up a Lyft or get a Lyft or Uber ride to there. Um, that's my recommended way to get there. Uh, but that they do, of course, uh, you know, have some restrictions on backpacks and large bags. So make sure you drop those things off at the hotel in advance. Um, and I do recommend 
uh, finding a good spot. Uh, if you're into t-shirts and free t-shirts, uh, the replay party t-shirts typically go very, very quickly. And so do, if that's one of your highlights of your thing is get a replay party shirt, get there when the gates open or as you will not uh, get them otherwise. Yeah. And I think one of the tips I would give is whoever you're going to plan on seeing at the reinvent party, go to the party with them because it's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty much impossible to uh, try to Marco Polo through the yeah. uh, the party. Yeah. I buy the bar. Which bar? I buy the one with the that looks just like X, Y, and Z. Which one that looks like that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So last year they had uh, it was the first year they had a different act than just the Skrillex on the main stage. They had a, a band in the other room, and so I'm, I'm assuming they're going to do that again this year too. So if you're not into the electronica music, which is a staple of the replay party, um, I bet they will have some alternative options for you again this year. Um, so do take advantage of those. Uh, the other thing on that, that venue, there is one bathroom that is, uh, in a building and that one always has the longest line of all of the bathrooms. Uh, on the right side of one of the tents, uh, there is a large number of porta potties and that is a much faster path if you're looking for a bathroom. Uh, as the line is not quite as long there because people don't see it cause it's kind of in the dark. We just wanted to mention for people who haven't been to Vegas before, especially, um, it is in the desert and it does get cold at night. So, especially uh, in December, especially yeah. in December for sure. Yeah. So, so as much as uh, as much as you want, you you want to go in your t shirt because it's a little warmer earlier in the day, and you know maybe have a couple of drinks or something. It is chilly. In fact, it is quite frigid by by the time midnight rolls around. So, you know, at least take something to to stay warm. That being said, if you're in the big tent with Skrillex or the big act, uh, it is pretty warm. <laughs> There's a lot of bodies uh, in those spaces, lots of lights and lasers and things that generate a lot of heat. Ooh. So do keep that in mind, too. Lasers. I love lasers. So maybe maybe layers. I w- I'd recommend layers. Yes. Layer and then uh, be able to change as you need to. But of course, you can't take a backpack, so yeah, you have to work that out. But. All right, good. Well, that's awesome. Uh, thanks for those tips, guys. I'm sure people going to reinvent will love those. Moving on to Google. Uh, Google has launched a new service for monitoring multi-cloud networks. Uh, this new service is aimed at helping customers using multiple cloud providers get a bit a better handle on the network operations. Uh, these features include the Network Intelligence Center, uh, which is supposed to deliver predictive and proactive healing around network failures driven by AI and ML, a uh, comprehensive network monitoring verification optimization platform that spans both clouds and on-premise data centers, uh, and the services uh, around this include the network topology service, the performance dashboard, and the firewall metrics and insights capabilities all there to help you secure and manage your cloud environments. How kind of them. <laughs> yeah. To provide a way to report on other people's performance, other, other cloud's performance. I, I, it's it's kind of cool to have network topology. I'd like to think that you knew what it was going to be before you deployed it, but um, often that's that's not always the case. So not the people who, who want to see the topology aren't the people who designed it necessarily. But it's um, you know, more information is always good. That's an area where people are not always certain what they have deployed, especially when things have grown organically. And to have an easy way to go um, just sort of get that snapshot, especially if you can visualize it, which was always a huge issue with AWS for us, and visualizing security group rules and um, network topologies was always challenging. But there's so much information. You know, you've potentially got knuckles, you've got root tables, different availability zones, VPNs, peering. That's just the Amazon stuff. You have the, the parallels in Azure and we have the parallels in, in the Google Cloud. So much information. How do, how do you visualize that in a way which is like digestible or even and sort of even sensible to look at? Yeah, it does get tough, you know, when, when I mean, obviously you, you want to filter it down. We've done it a few different ways. We've filtered um, by VPC. We've filtered by tags. To, to And tags make it pretty easy to to go through and actually select certain uh, target uh, type environments. Uh, 
to uh, to limit. Otherwise, you end up with uh, something that literally looks like your wiring closet. Back in the day when we had CAT 6500s and hundreds of servers and, and a mess of Ethernet cables. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you have to, what we've done is we've basically built a bunch of different ways to filter that out so you can eat the elephant one bite at a time. Oh, that's cool. I, I did a laugh when I saw network topology because I think one of the first things I did as a, a rookie IT person was trying to map out the network of mm-hmm. HP switches with uh, HP OpenView or some equally, yeah, equally crappy OpenView. <laughs> I remember OpenView. <laughs> and so that's that's going back like uh, 20 years. So I guess we, we still seemingly have the same problems as we've always had. So That's because it's always the network, Jonathan. Always the network. Well, you know, the reason why Google might have wanted to create a network topology and connectivity testing tool is because apparently uh, they made the biggest gains in the Thousand Eyes report on public cloud network performance. Uh, Network uh, intelligence company Thousand Eyes, of course, today released the findings of its second annual study of major public cloud infrastructure providers' network performance. Uh, They're apparently uniquely positioned to provide this data because they have agents that they deploy to all of the cloud environments uh, and then do some type of testing of it. Uh, the sensors are, can also be deployed in companies' enterprises, and so they get a good mapping of both enterprise uh, connectivity to the clouds as well as from the clouds themselves. Uh, and the most surprising finding from the reports is that Amazon's network provides lower performance predictability than both Microsoft and Google, despite its status as the world's leading public cloud platform. Uh, the main issue with Amazon, of course, is its heavy reliance on the public internet for delivering network traffic, rather than its own infrastructure like Google and Microsoft. Amazon does provide its own network uh, through the Global Accelerator, but Thousand Eyes uh, pointed out that it does not always perform faster than the internet or the results are negligible in many cases. Although, uh, However, they did show lower latency and better performance than a year ago. Uh, Asia improved 29.2% uh, in performance predictability over the last year, and Google had the best improvement with a 36.4% improvement. Uh, IBM and Alibaba were also ranked. Uh, IBM apparently was comparable to the big three, but they were not reviewed last year. Uh, so they can't compare them. And Alibaba also had a comparable uh, with a few notable exceptions in the U.S. So, Did you download the report from Thousand Eyes? I clicked the link. I did not read it further. Did you? Yeah, I did actually. They, they, they actually have a bunch of really useful information. You only have to give away your, uh, your, your name, your email address, the company, and your firstborn child to get the PDF. Okay. But they've done an analysis on um, not just the cloud providers, but also major ISPs. And then they've got a dig a little deeper into some of the more specific services like the global accelerator and things like that. So it's it'd be a really good reference material if you if you need to make some kind of global deployment for a, an efficient network. It's a, it's a good place to start. Neat. Yeah, yeah it was uh, pretty interesting to see. Um, I wonder how much of Google's improvement was just those uh, dedicated lines they put underneath the ocean uh, between yeah. those new regions. You oh, know, for sure. Just improving that latency on the Google backbone for some of those calls might be a humongous impact. You know, you're talking about a thousand percent improvement of uh, reliability between South Africa and Europe, that might be, that might sway the numbers just a little bit. That's my my only thought about this data. It is important though to to point out things like inter AZ latencies when they're talking about improvements with, you know, from year over year between the providers. Oh sure. But so AWS average latency between AZs was 0.8 milliseconds, which is not a lot. Uh, Google uh, GCP at least was uh, the same last year, and they've reduced that to about 0.5 this year. So we're talking about point three milliseconds difference in latency between the two. It's not significant. Azure came in very slightly higher. If your application requires a latency you know, on that order of magnitude, then this kind of optimization is not significant. Well, I'm downloading the report as we speak. <laughs> nice. <Yep. laughs> Love it. Real and I, time. And I will I will check a look at it because I Real meant to do that before the show. Reporting. Yes, I will. I will look into it. I, I 
It's definitely intriguing. Uh, Google has acquired Cloud Simple to bring more VMware workloads into its cloud. Uh, cloud Simple is a Santa Clara based California. Uh, they're a startup we've talked about here many times on the show, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, the, soft, the startup software makes it possible to deploy VMware's vSphere hypervisor and related virtualization tools on GCP directly. Uh, Rich Sanzi, Google's Cloud Vice President of Engineering, wrote in a blog post, Many enterprises are using VMware in their on-premise environments to run a variety of workloads, business applications such as ERP and CRM, databases such as Oracle and SQL Server, development and test environments. With CloudSimple, our customers can migrate their VMware workloads from on-premise data centers directly into Google Cloud VMware solution by CloudSimple while using their also creating new VMware workloads as needed. Uh, the more interesting wrinkle is that CloudSimple is also the company that partnered with Azure, uh, to bring VMware to Azure. So I'm not sure what this means uh, in the light of this acquisition. Uh, and there was no comment uh, by either party, Google or CloudSimple, on what their future plans are for VMware on Azure. So that may become a bit of a gap for those of you uh, using VMware on Azure with CloudSimple. They've quickly quenched that service from Azure, haven't they? Uh, if they if they discontinue support for, for the Azure cloud. It would be a, a bit of a big blow. I would imagine that Azure might be begging VMware to take their money now <laughs> versus uh, that versus being so exclusive to uh, Amazon. Such an interesting space acquiring these companies that really created themselves on this concept of, you know, more of a multi-cloud capability and then changing them to single cloud, like <laughs> such a strategic move. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the ultimate um, anti-competitive behavior really. But it's totally competitive, right? I mean, this is how Google's going to catch up and make the cloud infrastructure space competitive. I wonder how much of this will help them with Kubernetes when VMware gets Kubernetes on top of uh, VMware working. And then Google can say, not only do we have GKE, but we also have VMware Kubernetes. So if you want both, best of both worlds, you get both. I feel like it's going to be a, a bit of a muddle of, of services for the next couple of years be, before they finally sort themselves out and you know, got VMware with, with Kubernetes, we got um, Google, with, uh, we have all the providers with, with the VMware support now. It's all, it's all kind of really, it seems kind of messed up. <laughs> it's just land grab. It's just land grab of workloads. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're grabbing, if you're like, they're not looking for the optimal technology solution. They're grabbing the resources and they'll figure it out later how to move them to their optimal product set. Lift and shift from VMware on-premise to VMware in the cloud is is probably not a sustainable uh, way of doing a migration. Yeah, I guess it's just a it's a foot in the door for whoever happens to own the technology. Well, the Google Identity Platform has uh, gone multi-tenant. Uh, you can now create and manage multiple tenants with a single instance of Identity Platform. Multi-tenancy allows you to create a unique silo of users and configurations within a single Identity Platform instance, and it most commonly used for B two B apps to serve customers and partners. Uh, each tenant will get its own unique identifier, users, identity providers, and auth methods, auditing and cloud IAM configuration, quota allocation, and identity platform usage breakdown. Uh, so this is uh, making this a little bit more competitive with uh, Cognito and some of the other technologies out there in the auth space. This is um, multi-tenant as in tenants of Google customers, not not. Yes, so as a, as a SaaS provider, you could use identity platform, and then you could basically have each of your customers have their own tenant space. So they have their own single sign-on provider. They can have their own users. But it's all tied to one organization and one system for authentication to your SaaS application. It makes a ton of sense to outsource this. I mean, so undifferentiated. But I think just being here in the in the Bay Area, everybody has already built this. And so I think in other parts of the 
country. This is probably something that will be um, adopted much quicker. And we're just in this weird base. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting because I think you, you've seen several startups kind of get really dominant by doing very niche things, but doing it better than you can do it. So mm-hmm. think companies like Twilio and Auth0 um, that basically provide a very simple function, um, but you know they do it really well. So yes, a lot of companies have these capabilities, but if they didn't have to build these capabilities, that's resources they could put to something else and more future innovation. And the ability for these services to support things on day one um, makes you a, potentially a big different trader. So I know like Auth0 supported the new Apple authentication method uh, day one when they first shipped it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those type of things are big enablers that get you a whole new way to authenticate users with, you know, with OAuth and all the different technologies, but you don't have to do any work to make it happen. That's a pretty big enabler. No, for sure. And so I think, well, yes, there's a lot of companies in the Bay that probably have this capability um, or built it themselves. The ability to not have to manage this kind of code, if you can get it for the right price for build versus buy, it, it makes sense. And so I can see why Cognito and Identity from uh, these guys and off uh AD365 is, is popular because of eliminating this requirement from your, your stack. That's cool. And I'd like to see, um, in fact, I th- not just like to see, but I, I think we'll see uh, mass migration to federated logins for most internet services over the next couple of years. I think now now Google and Facebook and Apple have, have their federated login services. There's absolutely no reason for anybody to have to manage their own list of user accounts and passwords and and you know, have to manage the risk of, of exposure of that kind of data when you can just trust somebody else to do it for you. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft has announced that Salesforce will migrate its marketing cloud to Azure. Uh, it's probably a large contract, although they didn't expose the details of the contract. The marketing cloud for Salesforce is, of course, a suite of advertising tools, analytics features, and related products that ranks as one of the most widely used toolkits in the marketing category. Uh, Salesforce doesn't break down the unit exact sales figure, but in August, the marketing and commerce cloud e-commerce platform had a combined revenue of over $616 million. Uh, this is interesting because Salesforce does have competing products with Dynamics 365, and the marketing cloud uh, do compete in those spaces. Uh, and Salesforce.com uh, has been a big AWS customer as well as apparently GCP, which means it could have just as easily chosen one of those platforms, but might have done this for leverage uh, on both AWS and GCP uh, and avoid that vendor lock-in. So this is an interesting announcement. Do you really think they'd get enough leverage from AWS and GCP to, to offset the um, the cost of managing a whole extra cloud? I don't know. No. I I don't know how much leverage you actually get by being on multi-cloud. I don't know that AWS really cares that you're using GCP or Microsoft. They think they're the biggest and the baddest, and so they don't need to worry about that. Where Google cares and Azure really cares that you're using both because they want market share and they want you to start having good experiences on their clouds, then move it to the next yeah, if everybody's already on AWS, the way you become, the way you grab market share is by being the second cloud that they use, which means they have to be multi-cloud. Yeah, it's interesting, though. I've talked to four or five different uh, companies now that have made the decision to go to Google. And the reason that they used to go to Google was not because Google's technology was superior. They were, in each of those cases, they were very much interested in going to AWS um, but, you know, through the sales process, you know, Google comes in, has a much better enterprise sales team now. They, in the partnership, they throw marketing dollars at the companies to get them to make that move. And at the end of the day, they're just getting outplayed. Uh, and AWS is just kind of caught flat-footed because they don't have a good way to engage with customers who don't spend money. They engage with you as a customer when you spend a lot of money. <laughs> you get an enterprise <laughs> account team. 
and you get these things. And they really rely on the partner network, which I know Foghorn does a great job on this to help address this gap. But AWS really has got to figure out their, you know, the companies that are zero to $10,000 a month, like those customers will eventually be the $100,000 a month customers. Uh, but if you don't get them at zero, you're not going to get them ever. And I think that's right. the big risk that AWS has right now. And I don't, I don't know they quite understand that because it's been amazing how much GCP has become a big topic of conversation in a lot of enterprises uh, since TK got in there and they brought in SAP salespeople who have these relationships with these enterprises that didn't exist before. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny because that's where Amazon started, right? Their roots were the people who, the developers who were using very small workloads. The problem now is I think the cloud is now a CTO decision or a CIO decision and it's less about grassroots developers picking a platform that's kind of rebel and kind of gets them, you know, innovative and all that kind of stuff. Now everyone's going to cloud and so now it becomes a business conversation versus a developer-led initiative. And I think it's a risk. I don't know that they quite understand it yet. That's a, that's a sidetrack, but uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting nonetheless. <laughs> GitHub Actions for Azure are now generally available again following the recent GitHub Actions general availability announcement. Uh, the Azure Actions for Azure um, are quite numerous. Uh, there's connect and auth against Azure, deploy web apps, deploy serverless, build and deploy containerized apps, deploy to Kubernetes, deploy to Azure SQL or MySQL, trigger a run in Azure pipelines, uh, several utility actions for variable substitutions in your scripts, and many more coming soon. Uh, so if you are super excited about GitHub Actions, again, Azure has you uh, here as well with a lot of great uh, out-of-the-box capabilities. It's like they stealthily turned a CI tool into a CD tool. It kind of yeah. feels that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good call. They're like, we want to do more than just uh, CI. We want to do both. It's so easy for them, too. I mean, just look for a file in the repo, take actions on it every time there's a command. It's awesome. Yeah, it's really great. I'm super pleased. I, with I'd, I'd love to know actions. if it was actually, um, is it a Microsoft initiative or since they acquired GitHub or was it always in the pipeline? I'm curious to know where the innovation actually came from. I think GitHub Actions was in beta before the acquisition or right around the time of the acquisition. And you know, really, Microsoft didn't have a good build solution other than TFS, but that didn't, you know, their CD is kind of limited. A good build solution other than TFS. Okay, <laughs> that's not how I, mean, I, I don't. I, would, I don't count TFS as a good build system. I, I mean, yeah, some people do. I wouldn't but phrase I, it like I don't. that. <laughs> the, the only experience I've had with TFS is people wanted to migrate to GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And then they just bought it. So yeah. your customers run away from you to a competitor, and then you just buy the competitor. It's a great play. Yep. It's well, well so done. much easier. But you know, I also think they had to. I think uh, GitLab, you know, already had CI/CD capabilities kind of being built out into it, and I think uh, you know GitHub Actions was kind of a response really to GitLab, uh, and I think it just helped you know when Microsoft bought them to put more resources behind it. Well, uh, if you are tired of spending money on Azure services, uh, you can now reserve uh, those resources to save a lot of cost savings. Uh, now, the Blob Storage GPV2 and the Azure Data Lake Storage is available to you in, with a 38% discount if you're willing to purchase in 100 terabyte or 1 petabyte uh, size blocks. Uh, you can save money on the Azure database for MySQL, Postgres, or MariaDB with a savings of over 51% uh, on the DB offering. Uh, and you can exchange those reservations to move from a GP to a memory optimized or vice versa at any time uh, after that purchase. The Azure Data Explorer now provides you a 30% discount uh, if you're willing to uh, reserve that capacity. And the premium SSD managed disks will save you a lovely 5% uh, if you're willing to commit. So maybe not on that one. Maybe don't commit to that one. It's only 5%. But the other one's a freaking savings. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is capacity mm-hmm. reservation in addition to... Uh, discounts, right? For for committed spend. Correct. You're yeah. you're committing the the reservation and then the cost savings. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, it's nice. It's good to see. 
different options, different capabilities beyond just EC2 or instances uh, and RDS or managed databases. It's good to see some other things. You can start yeah. saving money on because you can do those things on on Amazon, but through special contracts and special amendments. You don't get them, you know, as a global service. You can buy uh, with just a click of a button in the console. Yeah, but, but Amazon at least have like tiered costing. Models for, for things like S three. The more you the more you store, the more you save. So I guess they 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 kind of have a similar thing, but they've obviously simplified that hugely with their savings plans. All right, well that's it for new news this week. Peter, take us to the lightning round, please. Let's start off with Amazon Cloud Search provides an option to mandate HTTPS and the minimum TLS version. Finally realized they have a service called Cloud Search and was like, oh, this isn't compliant. Fix it now. <laughs> I have no idea what cloud search is. <laughs> what a, it's a search engine for your web product. Um, okay. No one used it before. That's why no one knows what it is. I've never seen, I've never noticed that in the console. Oh my God. It's a pretty old one too. Really? It's old. Yeah. Oh wow. It's been a long time. Yeah. Crazy. All right. I've got a GA announcement. Google, Google cloud run a managed K native service. Uh, all I can say is run. <laughs> Run from it. Or run to it, one of the two. Out of you, whatever, you, whatever you prefer. Amazon CloudWatch Metric Math now supports additional functions. Finally. Maybe you can calculate how much it's going to cost you. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about Metric Math. That sounds scary. What, you don't often need to know the square root of the number of alerts? I not normally. we got to work square root into there somehow. Amazon RDS Performance Insight supports counter metrics on Amazon RDS for SQL Server. As long as it's pulling the same WMI graphs that all the SQL Server tools use, then I'm okay with this feature. AWS Cost Explorer now supports hourly and resource level granularity. Because I couldn't divide my monthly cost by 744 and come up with an hourly cost. <laughs> but it costs money. Right? You want the granularity, it's, it's going to cost you. No, but you're missing it. You could tell by the hour where you spent your money. I can now tell by the second, not the hour. It's by the second. I can now tell. <laughs> I don't care by the hour. I care how much it costs me at the end of the month. Like the cost to do business doesn't, it shouldn't be per hour, right? Who cares if it's per hour? So, so your customers uh, cost you more money to run your services during the day. Well, no <laughs> anyway, but it costs, you have to pay extra for that service though. You want, you want that kind of granularity. You've got to pay extra per thousand resources and it's the grand total of one cent per thousand resources. It says here they give you hourly costs up to 14 days, so you can track the cost during nights or off-peak hours. So in case you, you didn't know what your auto-scaling was doing and costs, you can now f- filter it in a graph. There you go. I, You're I, welcome. I guess they're going to start including this in the well-architected thing. You know, you can use this to measure your your uh, scale-down uh, uh, efficacy, I guess. But, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think they should charge you for visibility into billing. Foghorn built this in 2013. You should have sold it to them. You were you were ahead of your time. Ahead of our time. Automate your operational playbooks with AWS Systems Manager. That sounds kind of old. Is that new? It it is, but uh, you can now you know not use Ansible, I guess, which is the better choice. I like Ansible. <laughs> winner. Just the lowercase M is the winner. <laughs> You can now add Python or PowerShell scripts in combination with existing automation actions. Wow. Calling it Amazon APIs or running commands on your instances. That's 
What could go wrong? Like, why couldn't you do that before? Like, <laughs> why, why would a playbook have not let you do those things before? I, I don't know. Because the because the document language they chose to use for systems manager is kind of garbage. And yeah. So I think they're they're trying to make up for some sins they did there. Yeah, I think going for your own format for any kind of automation language at this point is it's kind of pointless. I I love what they did with CDK, and and reverted back to a common language that everybody understands, which is Python. And I, th- I think they should do the same thing for all of their systems managers and all their automation platforms. Is use a language that everybody already knows. Don't build your own. No point. I agree. Moving on, AWS Code Pipeline enables passing variables between actions at execution time. We should. Uh, we talked about last week. We should have a category of things that should have already been there. <laughs> this would be a very clear contender. I remember the first time I used Concourse CI. And I couldn't figure out how to do this. And it's because it didn't exist. It's like, no, 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 you just stick them in a file and let the next thing read the file. I'm like, how could that possibly be a feature embedded in the product? Yeah. I mean, a, a so. pipeline is, is, is like things move from one end to the other end. How can you just not let environment variables move from one end to the other end? I'm telling you that these products didn't have it. It's so weird. It's the first thing I would have added as a feature request when I started building the product. 0.1. Yeah, and relatively speaking, CoPipeline isn't that old either, so it's surprising that it had this gap. Announcing EMR runtime for Apache Spark. I'm happy about this, but the number of custom AMI runtimes that exist now is too high. Like, there's the ECS uh, optimized, the EKS optimized, the EMR optimized, the uh, machine learning optimized containers. Like, come on, can can we just figure this out so that we can be more more prescriptive about this with single type of instance versus thousands of specialty ones. Yeah, we need a spark maker announcement to reinvent it, which just picks the right runtime. <laughs> ECS container instances monitoring is now available in Amazon CloudWatch Container Insights. <laughs> I thought this was the same announcement from like two months ago when they first announced this, but I did not realize because I only have uh, one or two containers running and where I actually have this running that they didn't give you the levels of granularity into the specific host or specific container, which they now do. So uh, again, a feature that should have been there at announcement time <laughs> is now there in the CloudWatch Container Insights, which is actually a really awesome feature. If you haven't checked it out, I do recommend checking that one out. Uh, but I didn't quite realize the limitation because I, I don't have enough nodes to see it. Be aware. And here I am being my, my usual negative self. It uses uh, custom metrics, which cost you 50 cents per month each. So not free. No, but it's uh, the, what it gives you is awesome and worth the 50 cents per metric. 50 cents. It adds, Come on. It adds up. Just pay the it 50 adds cents. Up. It does add up. Cross AZ traffic is only one cent per gig, but it adds up. Everything adds it up. It does. It's 50 cents. Come on. It's only 50 cents. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The first one's free. I can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports additional instance sizes. Yay. I'd love to understand why why their model on the back end, why their implementation at least, requires particular size. I mean, I, I get like the small sizes may not be supported because it's not of RAM or not enough whatever, not enough compute to make it viable. But why is there any limitation? Why isn't RDS like a, just an AMI that you can boot up at any instance and have it do its thing? It's the, the fact that they have separate instance classes and separate sizes and different support. It just blows my mind. Too complicated. Too complicated. CloudFormation announces drift detection support in stack sets. I'm super glad this came, but I, I don't know a lot of people using stack sets pretty heavily just because of some of the limitations that come into stack sets. 
Um, but it seems like a feature that, again, should have been there with drift detection day one. These are all very console-driven console um, kind of activities, and it's not something that most people, I think, uh, sort of do. Especially, you know, the, the things they care about in production are not things that you're clicking through the console to deploy, so it's perhaps um, useful for, for like non-production environments. But AWS Cost Explorer monthly forecasts now include support costs. Thank goodness. Like, <laughs> this is such a tax that you end up paying on your AWS bill as it grows. To not have it be forecasted or even visible in the Cost Explorer in any way was so annoying uh, before. Now, the only complaint I have is at the organizational level, I like to distribute that cost across my accounts based on percentages, but baby steps. Yeah. So how would that work, though? Like, if, if uh, only one of your accounts actually submitted support tickets, would you allocate the entire enterprise cost of support to... Uh, to that one account. Uh, I mean, I would do it based on spend. So if this, you know, the accounts that cost you more money, it costs you more money in support. So that's how I would distribute it out. Mm. Uh, but that's, that's just my. Idea. It's a expensive barrier to entry, I think, for a lot of people. Is the uh, is the business even the business level of support is is pretty pricey. But it's awesome when you have it. Yes. I don't see how you I don't see how you run a production workload on Amazon without business level support. Uh, I don't get well, it. Well, I can see how you do it, but you shouldn't. Yeah, that's just nuts. And the winner out of pure quantity. Of snark is Justin. Of course. <laughs> Justin, 18 now. Guest five. Last week sucked so bad, Peter. I, I almost gave the point to nobody. Oh, actually, if I recall, <laughs> I tried to give the point to you, even though you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> Instead, it got allocated to the guest. So. Yeah, the problem with doing a recording on a Saturday morning is that we're not quite awake enough, uh, unfortunately. So that's, uh, that's how that works out. Well, great. Uh, we are excited to uh, see you guys all ha- coming up and reinvent. Uh, the next week's show will be the prediction show as usual and a special AWS only show. So we will uh, be recording that here in uh, like 10 minutes. Uh, but uh, you guys get <laughs> a week later. So, yeah, we're already aware of what we're talking about. So see you guys next week on the Cloud Pod. Good night, everybody. See you in 10 minutes. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.